Hello everybody and welcome to Sex Talk. My name is Angel and I am your host today. Today I'm interviewing an amazing individual, Sophie, who has um, together with a team of people and full disclosure I'm also on the board but um, has created this nonprofit organization which you can find at www.answersociety.org that supports and advocates for sex workers in the Alberta region. And we are just so honored to have Sophie here with us today. Um, yeah, well, let's dive right in. Okay, Sophie, I really appreciate that you're willing to be vulnerable and share your story. And I personally know, because I've done sex work myself, just how intimidating that can be to talk about it when you don't know who will be listening. So I just wanted to start off by thanking you for that. Um, are you comfortable talking about the organization that we're doing this through? Yeah, absolutely. So who is the original founder of this organization? Are we talking about answers? I just agreed to something. I'm not even sure I was. <laughs> yes, we're <laughs> okay, talking amazing. about answers. Okay. So yeah. So uh, yeah, basically, uh, answers was uh, started on the spirit of peace. And peace has been a lot around in Edmonton for quite some time. Um, and anybody who wants to find out more about peace um, can definitely read the chapter that we have on our website right now um, in the book, um, Sex Work Activism in Canada. Excellent book. Um, so, yeah, Mona and I, we, uh, how I guess how it started was that uh, because of peace's work and they had been recognized in the community over the years, when COVID hit, um, they were in, they were put on a list to receive $25,000 to help sex workers in Edmonton. And uh, Peace was very excited about this, but then unfortunately uh, learned that because they weren't a registered non-for-profit, they could not qualify for these funds. And it was a very sad day. Just really felt like uh, we let the sex worker community down um, just th through that. Um, so then Mona and I just kind of looked at each other and like, well, maybe we should make a go at this. And um, we, 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 we thought we could just get it done in an afternoon and we just head to the, <laughs> we, we, this is a true story. We head to the registrar's office and um, they, they couldn't incorporate there. So they sent us to another one. So we're still thinking we're going to get this done in an afternoon, just a different afternoon. And uh, then we, we go to the next one and, and realize that, no, this is a process that's going to take us um, much longer than an afternoon. So that was last spring, 2020, and we worked on it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I even, you know, it's funny because I was talking to Mona when this all happened and Mona was like, I have to get you together with Sophie and, uh, you know, was saying we're going to just, you know, get a nonprofit. And I was like, oh, yeah, could you just pick that up at Walmart. And I, I don't <laughs> think Mona at that time understood, like, because my humor, I don't have a lot of tone in my voice. So it's like sometimes it's hard to recognize when I'm being a smart ass. But uh, yeah. And you know how Mona thinks like really fast. Yes. Really, Mona's got like so many thoughts in her head. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize that that was actually the thought process was that it could be done in a day. Yeah. Oh my. I know. And then we just, we really persevered and, and as difficult as 2020 was, we have to say we were very, very fortunate with answers coming together with the, the people we met, um, the connections, it all really 
came together like a like a puzzle would. Um, it really wasn't hard. So that was incredibly encouraging, really, really encouraging. And and just to grow the board, you know, to go from two to seven was was wonderful. And to have such diversity, even just on our board of with our own histories and our own experience and and even just down to the person who might not. And, you know, we need to hear that voice, too. Um, yeah. That's very important as well. Like, what does uh, somebody who's, yeah, I think I kind of support this, not sure, haven't heard much about it. You know, what, what do they sound like? So, yeah, what do they have to say? Yeah. And for anybody just tuning in, I'm actually talking to Sophie. He's one of the original founders of a new nonprofit here in Alberta, in Edmonton, called Answer Society. You can find them at answersociety.org. And their entire mission is to advocate for the well-being and safety of sex workers. And that means providing services, like matching sex workers up with services, uh, lobbying against laws that come up that are problematic, speaking to city council when necessary, like those kinds of things. And um, I'm a very proud member of the board as well, but I am not, uh, not in the position that Sophie's in where everybody is treating poor Sophie as if they have to leave the organization without any discussions whatsoever. Um, but it is about sex work and differentiating between what sex work is and what exploitation and trafficking looks like, which is a huge topic that we're going to dive into today. Everybody who's involved on that board has either engaged in sex work, is currently engaged in sex work, or has spent a considerable amount of time advocating for the rights of sex workers due to their own, you know, loved ones' stories or their lived experiences where they've come across issues where that advocacy is needed and uh we're we're going to be talking a lot about the sex work experience and what i want you to recognize so we don't have to keep mentioning it over and over throughout the conversation is that of course our own perspectives are going to be based on our own experiences um and sophie is able-bodied is um i don't know if your heritage is white but you're you're presenting white um and and you know therefore there's some privilege there as well and we all recognize that like when we're sharing our stories so know that you can't listen to a podcast like this and know what every sex worker's life is like like it's it's pretty personal and subjective would that be fair it would absolutely it is very unique um and i am definitely very privileged in my life right now um however i am disabled um, so I do identify with being a disabled person. Um, and that's why that's... I said able-bodied. Oh, okay. Sorry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You I, know, because I... people, when they meet you, they assume that you're, yes. you're not disabled and there's a certain privilege and a certain yeah. oppression that comes with that. Like I also have disabilities. So, um, I totally get that. And again, thank you for bringing that to the listeners. Cause yeah. 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 It, it, it's it's something that it's one of the reasons I, I I got involved with sex work to begin with is definitely because of of my disability for sure because I became uh, an unreliable worker and it's very hard to uh, succeed in capitalism as an unreliable worker and that's how I entered the workforce um, was an, as an unreliable worker so so when you yeah. talk about disability and being an unreliable worker can can you talk to that a little bit more like what is that for people who've never had that experience like what did that actually look like in your life it's incredibly frustrating um 
because of my disability, I uh, sometimes my body functions well on some days and some days it does not. And when it doesn't function well, I have troubles getting out of bed and uh, I also need to be very close to a washroom at all times. So I get uh, very anxious, uh, just even just driving or taking public transportation or even just leaving my house. Um, so uh, I, when I was a kid, I was a gymnast, super high energy, very overachieving, still have an overachieving personality, despite that limitation. Um, and, uh, had lots of aspirations, but, uh, where I found my challenges in my teens, um, was to be able to complete schooling. Well, that was extremely hard because what happens, um, I have Crohn's disease and when I get stressed, um, it, it. There's a correlation with how I feel, how my gut's feeling, and like there's a physical effect to that. And so it was very normal for me during midterms and finals to actually find myself in a hospital hospitalized. Oh, I'm and, so sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, um, so it's kind of like it became almost normal for me, but it was very discouraging because that's when you're supposed to perform the best. And um, and, and in the schools that I was in, there was just so many students that um, there was not really a one-on-one -on -one getting to know me. So I was really, I always felt like I was judged that I didn't show up to class or couldn't because mm -hmm. I was partying or, you know, like I never really felt like there was a lot of attention or that it mattered. Um, and I just didn't, I, I hear that now there's a lot more support for people in school that are in that situation, but back then I just didn't. So I guess moving on to the workforce, I was a, a, a gymnastics coach for a while and then I got fired from that. And then I started uh, working at Aldo's selling shoes and then I got fired from that. And then I started waitressing and then I got fired from that. I just kept getting fired and I just kept not being able to finish my semesters and it was just so frustrating. I didn't, it was so hard for me to feel like, um, my dreams just, it was hard to have them anymore. I just didn't know where I fit in. Um, and I had a lot of difficulties with my family at the time. They were having a hard time with living all this as well, being, you know, parents of a child that was chronically sick all the time and living in and out of hospitals. And I was the eldest of four kids. So, and, and they weren't just, they weren't very well, well off financially back then either. So like my dad actually had to leave us for two years to live in a different city. So my mom was on her own with four kids just because we couldn't make it financially. So mm -hmm. anyway, so it was just a really hard time for all of us. And um, yeah, I, I guess I ran away from home, got kicked out. I don't know. I'd say depends, you know, there's both in there, I think <laughs> at that time. And uh, yeah, I was just basically just, I was in Montreal all the time and I literally was just on the streets then for a few days. I didn't know where to go. I had no friends to stay with. I couldn't figure it out. And and then I remember just, uh, I passed in front of a strip joint and uh, now I'm really going on into this. Eh? I think this is a very long answer. Um, no, this is great. Okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, I remember that somebody that I worked with at Aldo's uh, became a stripper and I don't, I don't know, I had nothing to lose at that point. I just went in and, and I saw her and then she was like, hey, do you want to give this a try? And I guess my, I, I was, I had this, vision of what it would be like like I'd go into the manager's office and he'd ask me to get naked and tell me to turn around and you know like that's what I thought you know when I said oh well maybe but that wasn't it at all the manager was like yeah sure you can come and show up tomorrow after tomorrow if you change your mind no big deal if you come great like it was a really like not what I expected super easy going no pressure um and then of course she encouraged me and I ended up staying with her and then I thought I'd give it a shot and um and 
you know, like that first experience on stage, I have to say was extremely hard. Um, I picked the wrong song for my slow song. I picked Erotica by Madonna. <laughs> it was painful <laughs> because I was already doing, like I was 18. I had went to an all girls nun school, come from a Catholic background. Everything I'm doing right now goes against everything I ever taught was good in, in the world. And so I'm shaking and my third song, I'm, pretend, I'm supposed to pretend like I'm having an orgasm on stage. I was crawling. I couldn't even stand up. I was shaking so much. Oh God. But then, um, I got through it and, and, and then I started, I think I made like almost close to hundred dollars that night. It was $5 a song. And I, I was dancing a little wooden boxes and mm -hmm. everybody was just super respectful. It just wasn't what I was expecting. It was a very positive experience for me. And then I made money, you know, which is something I didn't know. Yeah. I was worried about being able to succeed at and putting money in my pocket to eat and find a place to live and stuff like that. And how long did you stay in the dance industry? In the stripper industry? Because I know we've talked about this. I was conditioned to call it dancing. I think dancing's great. Yeah. It was more the exotic dancing that I feel I don't identify with anymore. I identify as having been a stripper. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an exotic person. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> you don't get much whiter than me. <laughs> you don't look very exotic at all. Unless yeah. Ukrainians exotic. Like maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll make progies on stage, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that actually, you know, actually, that's not a bad theme for a showgirl. <laughs> I could see that working. <laughs> I tried so hard. I steamed up my my glasses. <laughs> so how long did you engage in dancing for and stripping? Um, in total, about six years. Yep. Wow. Um, and the industry has has had to have had, like, being in the industry for six years. Like, how do you feel that informed your view of humans and capitalism and sex and body positivity and like all of that stuff like how it was the best thing for me in my life when I look back like it's a story I kind of share often with people a lot of people are telling me back then that I would regret having been a stripper and now that I find myself in my mid-40s I'm like I regret quitting is what I regret it was the best thing for who I am it fit um it fit my body my personality I love people I love entertaining um, I love being athletic. Uh, I love creativity. I love the arts. Um, it just really fit well. It's just, yeah, it, 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 you know, I mean, it was a struggle as far as the work environment went, but that's because we just didn't really, society doesn't really pay attention to the rules and laws and regulations that are going on in strip clubs. And that's what was hard. And the fact that the whole industry changed while I was in it from going from no contact to going to full contact and nobody was having those conversations. We weren't being consulted about that. That was, that was hard for sure. Um, but no, it, it, to, to feel that confidence with my body and even just like, I feel that even sexually, I, you know, I guess I, I find that as a society, we're very sexually immature because we don't have a lot of education about sex. And so we had develop a lot of insecurities, I find, as a result of it too. Yeah. And we, you know, I'm sorry, I'm probably going a little out of line here, no, but this like is even fantastic. Even we're I think feel that we're even overly possessive towards our partners as a result of that. 
Um, and I've just been able, I've been very fortunate in my life that I've ended up with a partner who's very respectful of my individuality and that my body is my choice, whether I'm in a relationship or not, that is mine and what I choose to do it, do with it is, is up to me. Um, so yeah, I've learned so much. It's taught me so much. It's helped me grow. Um, phenomenally, even like just capitalism, like you said, that in itself, I learned about capitalism during that time in my life. I had a lot of times to think about it and go through it. And I have been ever since this does not fit for me. Absolutely not. I'm not a capitalist person. Um, so yeah, I guess it's hard to like remember all of it, but it definitely was something that helped me grow in a positive and healthy way for myself and who I am. And when people think about what it's like to be a stripper, quite often you hear it being correlated with drug use. Was that in your experience where most of the folks engaged in stripping um, addicts? I would not say most, no. Maybe half? Yeah, maybe half. Um, I mean, back then pot was illegal, now it's legal. Um, I, and, and we just, people just had different, we, I think we, 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 some of us treated it as a business. Some of us treated it as a hobby. Uh, some of us were just doing it to survive. And some of, uh, you know, there were some who did drink a lot um, on the job. I don't always know necessarily that it was because they were already drinkers, but when you're in a job where you're offered alcohol every single night and customers want to buy you drinks every single night, um, it's easy just to say yes, you know, because Absolutely. it's available to you. And a lot of other jobs, there's that, there is that distinction made and it's regulated within that business. Um, so for strippers, owners would like us to drink because we would become friendlier or, you know, looser, sorry, but you know, um, so like for myself, I was fortunate. I was, I was just really disciplined when it came to that, even to the point where I'm sorry, I have to admit to this, but um, I would have a name for a drink that I, the waitress would end up making a bit more money <laughs> because there was no alcohol in the drink. The customer thought they were buying me a drink with alcohol in it. I didn't do this very often, but I did do it sometimes. That's um, anything because I did the same thing and okay. quite often. <laughs> yeah. Quite often. And, you know, it, uh, so I, I was pretty fortunate. Um, and my roommate, you know, really good friend, still very good friend, uh, say she, she had a, a different experience than me. You know, she came, she came from a background of a father who was an alcoholic. When I met her, she was very, it she pained her very much that her father was an alcoholic. And she was very aware that she did not want to become like her father. And the time that we were together, I would say in the end, you know, she would say yes to that drink every night. And unfortunately, she she did become an alcoholic and is still struggling with that today, but making great efforts, huge efforts, and sometimes has relapses. Um, so, yeah, I she was in the industry, though, for almost two decades, so much longer than me. Um, and, and like for listeners, I want you to understand that whether you're engaged in like escort work or working in massage parlors, street sex work or stripping, that there's a lot of stigma from everybody around you, you know, so that does wear on a person. And the longer somebody's in that industry, the more coping strategies they're going to develop. Some of those will be good and some won't, you know, it's just like any other coping strategy system. 
Um, for yourself, Sophie, I mean, you were dancing for six years, uh, taking off your clothes and, and absolutely utilizing every aspect of femininity that is taught to girls as a negative thing um, that's only valuable if you're, you know, a virgin for some reason. Um, and using that to entertain, to connect, and to pay your bills. If, if your own children came to you and went, I want to be a stripper. How would you feel about that? Honestly, I, I would just be like, okay, let's make sure that the, 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 the working conditions are good. Let's, let's focus yeah. on that. That would be the main thing, right? Other than that, good. I mean, that's, that's her choice or their choice. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I would be a, a supportive parents and, and I've seen it. I've seen it in some other families too, like some other strippers. Um, for me, it wasn't the case. It, still isn't the case even today even with the answers it's nothing that i could even tell them about um there's still a lot of of, of they see lots of shame in me when it comes to that um mm -hmm. and i feel that other you know it is something that is can be common with strippers but there's also some strippers who do have the support of their parents yeah absolutely i really love that you brought up the lack of regulation around the working conditions and um, you were talking about agents and what your expectations were and stuff. Did you find that agents uh, were earning their commission by making sure that your work environments they were sending to you were safe and that you had access to the supports you needed? Not at all. That's why I was able <laughs> to break free and I did very, very soon. Um, that's what I think they struggle with in the West that I really feel for, for the strippers here. They really feel like you have to go through that agency and they hold a lot of control and power. So out East was where I was accustomed to, and we had a choice if we wanted to go through an agency or not. Um, and so, yeah, I learned quickly that no, uh, it, 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 it did not provide that service for me. So yeah, I just cut the middle person out very quickly. And what about the expectations of like the club owners, the DJs and that kind of thing? Like, how do you feel about their relationship with the strippers? Is that a supportive relationship? Is it, you know? DJs for sure. DJs, I feel like they've always kind of been kind of like a little chaperone kind of feel to it, you know, especially because I used to travel to different clubs and I was, I, I'm actually a shy person in some ways. Um, and, uh, I, you know, you'd always kind of hang out close to the DJ booth <laughs> and they kind of knew, right? They, they're usually there because, you know, they love to entertain people as well. Like, I feel like there's almost like we could understand each other on some levels. Um, I mean, it's different with managers and owners, I wouldn't say, but I, I was very fortunate in some of the clubs that I've worked at and we had a really good, like, management team. Um, yeah, and some really good wait staff too, but yeah, I I'd say positive relationship there. And where do you think the most negative experiences came from? Was it from clients, from staff that you had to work with, with coworkers, with the uh, like? It's the managers with. It's mm -hmm. the pat patriarchal stronghold. That's what I had the biggest troubles with. Yep. What do you mean? Just that all management, most, when I say all, like I met, I, I traveled at about 20 different clubs and I only knew one club that was owned by um, a couple. All other clubs were owned by men. And I only worked at one club that had a female manager, um, all men, bouncers, all men. So everybody who's on top of you is the opposite sex of you. So it is very sexist, incredibly. Um, 
And of course it causes issues like when the industry changed and there was no consult and they just assumed that we would be totally good with, you know, going from dancing, you know, on a stage or like a foot away to like sitting on somebody's lap and grinding them. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it wasn't what I had signed up to do. And that's a, that's another really good point. Like in any time that you see legislation come in that regulates sex work or changes the rules around sex work, whether we're talking about dancing or massage parlors, escorts, it doesn't matter. Those rules are very rarely put into place with the input of the people that are actually doing the work. Uh, but the club owners definitely had an input. So like the goal of the club owners, like, versus the goal of the dancers like can you speak to that at all oh absolutely and i've only realized more through my digging now i've i've lots has come up in regards to that and i feel very like part of me like i'm a i'm upset i'm still really upset about my ignorance back then and in, in terms of that um so I did not realize we did not have social media and ways to connect. I feel it's still hard for even the community, sex working community to, to connect together, but it was harder back then. Um, and so when this was being imposed on a lot of the clubs and the girls, and so I use girls just because that's the language we used, um, as you may know. Um, so when they imposed this, um, they would kind of play the card of, oh, yeah, well, no, we're, you know, yeah, we just think it's giving you more freedom. And, and they were kind of like, in my experience, a little nonchalant about it. And some clubs and other clubs were like, nope, that's what we're doing now. And if you don't want to do it, well, then just don't work this week. You know, this is this is what we're doing. Um, so I didn't realize that there were some women, like this woman that I love to track down one day. Her name is Catherine Goldberg, was her like pen name, her dancing name. I don't know if that's actually her dan her dancing name, but that was just her her chosen name. She campaigned for about two years, not only in Toronto but a whole bunch of municipalities across Canada. Um, and she even had a campaign. She even had like out of Jack Layton's office when he was a city councillor in Toronto to ask the municipalities to have this one foot rule imposed, like in in um, they would have that incorporated in their bylaws that there had to be a one foot rule in between the, the dancer and the customer. Well, the way that the owners reacted to this, and I didn't know that this existed back then, they started an association and they, it's reported, spent over $1 million lobbying municipalities to not adopt this one foot rule and to even bring it to the Supreme Court of Canada, which they finally won in, I think, 1999. So that fight really kind of went on during that time. and. The main club I ended up working at in Studio 4, the owner there, what, he was kind of the kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, he, he wasn't very like, you do this or you get out, but he was kind of like, yeah, well, you do what you want. And, you know, some girls want this, some girls don't, but, you know, I'm not behind the scenes doing anything about this. And now I'm realizing he was lobbying hard, super, 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 super hard. He was one of the main people involved in this lobbying, at least in Windsor to have the lap dancing. And then unfortunately too, I'd like to just state on in on you know in regards to this, what I'm also realizing recently about um, this owner was that, or with the dynamic that it causes, is that then the city, he created a very antagonistic relationship with the city. Well the city's reaction to deal with this was just, well, we're just gonna charge them more, we're just gonna penalize the owner 
complete disregard of the workers. Like we weren't even part of the conversation. It's like the way that we're going to get back to this owner is we're going to make things harder for this owner, which of course trickled down to the workers. But yeah, no, we were never a part of the conversation. Um, so I'm learning more through my research um, of what was going on back then, but hopefully I said, shared that in a coherent, coherent manner. No, and I think that's, I, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Like, that's, that's amazing. That's not some backstory that I have from my own experiences. So that's like really cool uh, to know that, that that was going on. It makes sense though, that the people who have the most privilege also have more ability, more access to speaking as a collective to government officials. And even though um, that impacts like a group with way less privilege, it's like, oh, well, they're the ones with power will listen to them. Um, when, when you think about that power structure, like, what are some of the dangers for the actual workers in that power struggle? In, uh, like, like even in, where, yeah. where sex workers don't have a voice, like, so like strippers, for example, they okay. don't have a collective, they don't have a voice. So like, what are the negative impacts of that? Well, that's a perfect example. The whole industry changed. The whole industry changed. It's like working, doing something and having it completely change without you being consulted about it. Yet you're the one making up the industry. So yeah, the, and, and, and it wasn't easy. I mean, I, I know that the, even just with some, even myself, like I tried, I was in Windsor and then Toronto was kind of a leader in this whole lap dancing stuff. And I remember going mm -hmm. and, and uh, I drank a lot that night and I was not a drinker on my job. And then I even called somebody from the club I was working at Studio 4 in Windsor and and said, I can't do this. Like, I'm coming back. Like, I can't do it to this extent. It was just like, for me, again, I just, it wasn't what I was used to. It wasn't what I was, you know. Um, uh, and no additional safety rules were put in place no, either. No, that's the thing. So. Like, no showers. You know, if you're going to body rub their showers, you can get cleaned up. I mean, if you're going on these couches, yeah, no, nothing changed in the clubs. Exactly. That's an excellent point. Nothing changed in the clubs to accommodate this change other than just expecting us to accommodate the change. And that was it. Um, and a lot more opportunities for sexual like assaults as well. Um, I feel like when there's a clear one foot boundary, there's a clear one foot boundary. And but when that boundary isn't there, well, what what is stopping me from trying to grab your breast or, you know, Oh, you know, like brush up more or, and, and we didn't always know how to maneuver those situations either because we were just kind of thrown into it. There's no training, you know? Yeah, no, no training, no how to help <laughs> each other. No, none of that. No. And uh, so like your takeaway for people that are listening, like if there was one thing that they come away from, from listening to your voice and your experiences, whether they're um, folks with loved ones who are entering into sex work of any kind or professionals who might have clients who are sex workers or just your, you know, folks who often are like, ah, we need to shut down all sex work. Like what, what is the one thing that you want people to take away from your experience? The, you know, can something I, can that I say two, it's so yeah, hard to choose sure. between these two. One <laughs> is, one is don't conflate. If you conflate, please take the time to educate yourself between the differences because conflating sex trafficking and sex work will only harm both. So that's a huge one. Two, pay attention to the actual working conditions, like the actual, like get to know the industry um, is very important because that's the thing that we're, that we get hit with the most, like the, the stigma around it is actually harming us because people aren't paying attention. So the owners can get away with really 
like with unfair fees and and just not being treating us like they would any other worker out there and that's what makes their work difficult absolutely and i'm i'm so with you on this so like i really i'm grateful you and i've had a lot of similar experiences i began dancing as well i was in winnipeg that would have been in 1990 yeah because my kid was like a baby so 1990 i was in winnipeg and there's only one agent there and the clubs will not take you as a freelancer like i want to be very clear you either worked through rick or you didn't work those were your options and he was a sleazebag um just for anybody wondering he just took 20 percent of everything the clubs paid you you picked up your paycheck from him so you didn't even have the opportunity to argue over commission and that kind of thing and uh the clubs could fine you for wearing the same costume twice or for not being exactly 18 minutes on stage. You had to be 18 to 20 minutes and at least four minutes of those, you had to be completely naked. Like those were the rules. And you didn't get to see other dancers because in Winnipeg, you got assigned a driver whom by the way, you had to pay. So another 10% of your wages gone. So 30% right off the hop, you're not getting. Um, and they did have the three foot rule. So the tables were actually three feet away from the stage. And there was what we called the pit, right? So tipping was hard too, because they had to clear that three feet with their money um, in order to tip. They managed, um, but a lot of times money would land in the pit. You weren't allowed to go and pick it up. Um, and you changed in the car in between shows. So you would go from club to club to club to club, and you would have a schedule for the week. And if you showed up at the same club next day in the same costume, you got fine. And all that was automatically, there was no appeal process, like there was no, you would just go to get your paycheck and it would have a list of fines, what you owed the driver. If the driver drove like an arsehole or made inappropriate comments too bad, that was your assigned driver, you were stuck with them. It was like, it was intense. And then after you do that for six weeks, they send you out to other places, which is the first time I got to meet another dancer it was six weeks after I'd started dancing. And uh, I was in Thunder Bay and they table dance there. You carry around a box and you have to dance in between the knees of a client. And I was like, say what now? Like, so to go from a place where you danced on stage, changed in the car and you didn't interact with clients. Like you, you showed up in costume, they put your music, like you hand your tape to the DJ and you get your ass on stage. And then you gather up your clothes, throw on your house coat, run to the car, change into your next costume and away you go. And uh, to go from that to hanging out in a change room with 12 other dancers, you're supposed to mingle. You have to spend a certain amount of time in the club where you get fined. Um, the DJs want a percentage of your ticket sales that you sell for lap dances. And I was like, so, you, well, they called it table dancing because you weren't allowed to touch the person. But you had to sell tickets and the DJ would only pay you 80% of what you sold. And I was oh, like, wow. why does the DJ get money? for me being at risk with this person, you know, and you had to sell an X amount of table dances um, every week or you got fined. And I was like, blessed. and you had to have posters or you got fined. And nobody told me I needed posters because in Winnipeg, there's no opportunities for posters. So I was at Staples trying to print off pictures and they were hassling me about it in tears because I couldn't afford the fine if I didn't have posters. And so like, for me, 
um, it was a totally different experience, right? Like, and yes, the empowerment. Oh my God. I loved being able to put on a persona and behave confident and sexy and a big F you to any people who wanted to sit there and fantasize that they'd be taking you home that night. Cause you didn't have to interact with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, aside from like letting them look at you on stage and flirting with your eyes and stuff like it, and then you left. So you were like this unattainable dream and it was brilliant and amazing. And I loved it. I loved that you could be as provocative as you wanted. You could be as ladylike as you wanted, or you could be as slutty as you wanted. You could change your persona from club to club and too bad. Like that's just what you're doing. And people had to put up with it. Um, I loved the costumes and, and, and the makeup and it was just so much fun. It was like playing dress up every day and I paid really well <laughs> for it. Um, but my relationship with the DJs is actually pretty adversarial because they were the ones putting in those fines. You look like you wanted to add to that. Oh, sorry. I, I was waiting. To, no, go ahead. Somebody, somebody came in. No, no, sorry. Oh. It wasn't you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, no, but I, I really, I love hearing, like, I, I, you know, I think sharing our stories too, even within the same, you know, close to the same time period. And even within the country, it's just varied so much. And I think that this voice too, and this um, experience of having been that stage dancer and not doing the table dances, that was huge in our history. Like it went on for decades. And I think, and, and there were actually, there were women protesting or workers protesting when that change happened. They didn't want to start doing, like, again, it wasn't what they signed up to do, right? Um, and there's quite a few news articles about that in the 80s speaking to that. Um, and yeah, I feel like every time period and all these different experiences, even within the same period, time period within different provinces in the country um, are so valuable to collect and hear because they've you know, influenced, you know, um, stripping as we know it today as well. Right? Absolutely. And I stripped for four years and uh, ended up coming out to Edmonton and uh, entering like the amateur dancer contest because nobody knew me here. And that was fun because you didn't have to do anything. Because amateurs don't, right? They flirt. They almost <laughs> show you things. That was a lot of fun. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, making a little extra money doing that and then being asked if I would run some classes. So I did that for a while. And uh, then out to BC where, man, the rules in BC for dancing, like if you're in Vancouver, like, wow. And then the money changed. Like, I don't know what they were paying when you started. But when I first started as, as someone with no costumes, no nothing, it was $30 a show plus tips. And then after I had some experience, it was $60 a show plus tips. When I went to the States and danced, it was $150 a show plus tips. And then when they moved from table dancing to lap dancing and the clubs were previously you had the pit, no longer had the pit, and you were supposed to like customers touch you, it was like $15 a show girls were coming in and working for well and we had to pay so i when i started working i would i would get some like shift money but then when the it started becoming more lap dances it was actually went from for me it went from table dances to couch it was called uh table dances to towel dances no couch dances so table dances couch dances couch dances you would do like an area where there was just couches it wasn't at their table it'd be t for ten dollars but there'd be no touching and then it became a towel dance so the towel dance you would put the towel on the 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 customer's lap before you and then you would sit down and then that finally the towel was removed and was full on lap dancing but from my recollections that's in my experience and, in canada and the more was, contact 
the less the clubs were paying you to oh, where absolutely. it actually got to where you had to pay them. Yes, we had to pay. Most of my career, I had to pay the club to work there. Yeah, absolutely. And it just kept so, getting higher and higher and higher, the fee. Yeah. So I just, and, and I want to I wanna bring to, to that piece what I've learned with my sociology classes is that as these changes were happening in Canada, we were also seeing more economic depression. So there was more women entering into the field, which because this was so unregulated, where clubs weren't held responsible for the work environment that they had, um, and there was very little way for the dancers themselves, the strippers, to access any sort of supports, because of course we're, you know, so heavily stigmatized as it is, that the clubs were able to change what used to be uh, a self-employment opportunity to actually exploiting their workers. Mm -hmm. And this was, this became like a survival sex work situation rather than being something that you could choose as a career. Like when I was dancing, I met women older than myself who had made a career out of stripping. Mm -hmm. And you could, you can't do that now. Yeah, I think it's only become t harder and harder and people have just expected it more now for free too, right? They just, for a reason or another, we've come to, if it comes to our sexuality, we should have free entertainment, you know? <laughs> like, I don't really, yeah, especially just, for the on online folks. Absolutely. And just for comparison, male dancers typically pick 75 to $500 a show. Yeah. And, and from the research I've seen from back then, same thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like so, yeah, fun. Um, I've super loved hearing your story. This is also, you know, what you're going to hear about me from sex work. Um, and to anyone who's listening, we've been talking to Sophie, who is one of the original founders and on the board now. Are you the chair now? Uh, no, we haven't established all of that. <laughs> I, uh, I think Ina's been chairing a lot of meetings. <laughs> We're trying to have a non-hierarchical board, and, and that's really an interesting thing to do. But anyways, answersociety.org, check them out. They advocate for sex workers, and uh, this, this podcast is also going to be used as part of our training for people to actually get to know sex workers' stories and whatnot. If you have a personal story that you would like to share about your experience with sex work, feel free to reach out to me. And you can reach me at GTFO, so that's get the fuck on at aspect.ca. And you can also download previous episodes at GTFO Radio or on um, Spotify, Podbean, things like that. This is Angel, and we're broadcasting for Sex Talk. That was awesome. I did. Did uh, did you?